You're listening to Men Talk Ubuntu podcast. This is part one of our final guest episode for season one. Thank you for joining us and our amazing guests this episode. We hope to continue adding with our podcast and more unheard of stories in the future. As always, we would love to hear from you and welcome your thoughts and suggestions as we grow. We are grateful you've chosen to be a part of Mental Kubuntu community. And as our philosophy says, how can one of us be happy if all the other ones are sad and unheard? It's okay. It's okay not to be okay. And it's okay to connect with Mental Kubuntu when you're not okay. Welcome to the Mentalk Ubuntu podcast. Our guest this episode hails from the history-rich Horn of Africa and now is a South Central Mancunian, protester, a Pan-Africanist, and another brother from the diaspora who loves to build communities. He's a big proponent of culture, music, and the arts, and actively works to dismantle stereotypes of those who are unaware of black culture and black people. So he really gels well with the mental Ubuntu approach of promoting positive perceptions of black men and also of mental health. We're really looking forward to this conversation and believe that you're going to find it really interesting because today we're learning that we can speak for ourselves. And to help us do that, we would like to welcome Nuradin. Nuradin, yes. it's a pleasure to have you here, brother. Please tell us. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you, guys. Thank you for inviting me. Please um, tell us about your story and journey. Mm, yeah. So the journey, journey starts in Hargeisa, northwest uh, Somalia. Um, even though these borderlines are there in Africa, I don't agree with them. I, I don't subscribe to them, but that's where I was born. I would say I'm a, I think I'm a Kushite, um, the three main East African kind of, that I know of anyway, uh, Bantus, Semites, and Kushites. And I'm a Kushite. So Kushites spanned all different parts of Africa, especially East and North, whether it's East South, whether it's North, they expand as central as you got, you know, Rwanda, so, yeah, my people are all over that side of Africa. So I don't claim to just be speaking as somebody who has Somali descent, um, but as I'm more of an East African descent. I see Africa as East, North, South, Central, West. That's how I see it. I, I, I refuse to play the colonial borderline tactics, which, is, which are there to divide us. Um, so I don't do that. So I came here at the age of nine to, to Manchester. It's quite surreal because I came, I, I was born in a city, it was the capital of the North in, in Somalia, but I came here to the capital of the North as well. So that's a bit like, ooh. so in the place where I was born, you've got these kind of mountains, kind of like the, the hills, they, they're known for the city and the outskirts of it. It's these kind of um, hills that are shaped like women's breasts. This is what this place on from. And then when I came here, everybody was talking about the Pennines. The reason why it rains a lot in Manchester, even though, as we were just off before we press record, we're talking about 
how it's not rained is probably one of the driest Aprils in Manchester for a long time. Everybody talks about their Pennines. So there is this surreal aspect of it. The, in relation to where I was, where I grew up and where my house is when I was a kid in, 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 in Hargeisa, in the place where I was born, in relation to how close I live to the city center is exactly similar to place where I grew up in Manchester in relation to the city center. So there's all these kind of weird, <laughs> weird things going on in terms of people, the vibrancy, the, the friendliness, all of these different things. And I don't know if, if either of you were living in Africa or grew up in Africa as a kid and you know that kind of, you know, at the age of five, I was getting on the bus. You know, everybody knows who you are to go and go to the city center. And when I tell some of my friends that they're like, five, you got a number? So like, yeah, bus driver knew me. He knew where I was going to get up. Everybody in my neighborhood was on the bus. Everybody's like that. Where are you going? Grabbing my ears, you know. I knew, you know, to look either side, to cross the road, to go and go to my granddad's. Um, he had a video shop where they rent videos and there's a cinema at the back. And Fridays, that was my thing to look forward to. But obviously, all of that was devastated by war in 88. Uh, civil war began in Somalia. And yeah, came displacement. All of the horrors that comes with, with war. I had my granddad brothers came here in the late 50s. And we, I was lucky enough, me and a couple of my other family were lucky enough to get out. And we came here in 1990, July the 8th, 1990. So last summer was 30 years, 30 years since I was here. Yeah. And I'm always kind of playing that kind of thing mentally. I'm not, I've never been back since because there's trauma of civil war. There's trauma of displacement and how war wrecks everything. So in terms of here with, you know, one of the topics here is mental health and definitely I have PTSD, PTSD. definitely. That is an aspect of, of that. I've never been back. I've been back to North Africa, but I've never been back to that part of East Africa because um, I've always realized that I need to do the therapy. I need to do the therapy before I could go back. No way could I go back without having to unpack a lot of things in therapy to be able to be able to be ready mentally to go back. Um, it's been peaceful where I was born for the past 20 odd years. They wanna be separate despite my reservations because I don't really agree. I don't want Africa to be chopped up into small little even countries like to be chopped up even further. Uh, but it's been peaceful for about 20 something years. Mm. The international community don't really want to recognize it, but it's called Somaliland. They have their own currency, their own three-party system. Um, so that that's all that's happening. I have a lot of like cousins and that are back there. Um, unfortunately, in the last year, my parents both passed away. So there's nothing there to go there because that's one of the biggest things that we go there to was to go back. I would have gone back uh, years ago, maybe. Um, and all my some of my siblings are all over the world as well. So there are few people there. And what I did was for my, a lot of things that I did, because I think people of Africa or people of African, there's a thing that we know. There's something within us that know, know like, so I'm quite instinctive. Maybe I, I might even get spiritual at this moment, but just to give insight to the people who might watch this. I realized that when I came here to get over the nightmares, because I would have nightmares, I, I, without anybody ever telling me, as even as a child, my i would have dreams of before the war how life was before the war to hold on to try to heal me 
from all the devastation that I saw and coming into a new culture, coming into a, you know, I always had family here, but I never wanted to come here because I've seen people wearing coats and stuff and there was snow and I'm like, what? Snow, like, why would people want to live there? You know, that's the question. That's the type of things that I would ask as a kid. And it's really funny because I never wanted to come here. I loved my childhood in East Africa. Uh, one of the things, I don't have any children. I'm, I'm 40 years old. I don't have any children because I always think I can't do it to them. I was a hyperactive kid as a child. I would run around and I would be coming back, you know, head to toe covered in dust. My mom would just look at me and go, shower. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> I never wanted to like, you, you would have siesta, you know, it was, the equator actually runs through that part of East Africa and it's really hot. It's super hot. So you would go to school at really early, like 7.30 school would start, finish around half 12. Between half 12 and 3, 3.30, the heat is like that. It's waving. It's waving. Like, you can't. But I never wanted siesta. Never. So I would do everything to get out of siesta. You know what I mean? I would do everything to go and find my cousin's house where, you know, they had a bit of a drive and there was a, like a bit of a shade we can kick the ball you know we'll play long ways you know what I mean kicking the ball to each other I would do anything to get out of it so I never wanted to come here and one of the things that I don't have to do because I always think children in this country are caged man they're caged and it always goes against that instinct of mine I to to go out to explore and all of those things that I miss like those little things you know so I did that instinctively to hold on to those things like to help me to hold those things Football is another thing. I definitely, I don't want to be too dramatic here, guys, but without being without football and my friends, we'd saved each other's lives. Coming here, I was, like I said, traumatized. I came into another trauma zone. <laughs> my side in the 90s in Manchester was a tough place. It was the kind of place that had me watching television, being scared of other black people. Because in the 90s, the TV was hella racist. Not that it's any different now, but I remember watching Crime Watch as a kid. I'm thinking, wow, because every other person was black, black. The suspect was black. This, and I remember I lived in the most heavily populated by black people, and I was beginning to come scared of black people, even though I came from a <laughs> country full of other black people. That's all I've known in my life. I would see the odd Asian person as a child in East Africa, the odd white person or the white people. You know what I mean? I've got like family who have got mixed heritage you know um so I, I would know that I would see auntie who lives in from England who lives in it but I remember I, re I remember those things and obviously that was 90s destitution poverty and all of the trappings that come with that when there's destitution it's lack of opportunities there is this kind of disdain and all of the things that come with that so yeah football I would say football had a lot lot to do um like i said i think i would be dead or i would be in prison now doing a long sentences um yeah and that that kind of shifted my mind shifted my politics to be fair it was a lot of the working class people in in the inner city manchester who were the real resistance who were resisting against capture policies the sense that there was no community and learning english was tough i later found out that i'm, I'm dyslexic and actually i've got adhd and we'll come on to that how my mental health, how I, you know, affects. It's also identity crisis. We can we can come on to as well, talk about it. But those are the things that affect my mental health on a daily basis. 
Um, yeah, so that's been the story. And, and politics is something that shaped because I never wanted anybody to experience war. So when I hear people talking about, oh yeah, the troops, we should send the troops and all of that kind of stuff. I'm like, what, you're gonna bomb people into peace? <laughs> you know, that's the kind of stuff that you have. So yeah, I, I got interested in going to protest. And like I said, I grew up in inner city Manchester, South Central Manchester, and there were a lot of people resisting, a lot of people resisting. And I took the cues from those people. And you learn then, this is what, how the society is formed. This is, and obviously experiencing different forms of racism. Um, I was talking to a friend of mine, actually, who I used to go out with a lot when we were teenagers and how we used to deal with racists. You know, we always used to say, if you, if, if we hear any, any racism, the, 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 the rule was, if you racially abuse me, you're going to bleed. That's, that's what the rule was, because we were that different kind of generation that we were never going to take it because, like I said, my grandfather, their generation took it here in the, you know, from the 60s, from late 50s, 60s and 70s, and we did it. But coming around when I got a bit older, in my 30s, in my late 20s, how I dealt with racism, in my now, you know, mid to late 30s, 40s, how I deal with racism is totally different from teenage to, to you know, to, to being... To, to growing up decade by decade and, and seeing and, and try to understand why people are racist and where this is coming from. But, um, but yeah, so anti-war, I've done a lot of anti-war, I did anti-racism when I got to uni. And I'm, I'm, I'm forever involved. I believe in civil disobedience. I believe that we are standing on the shoulders of giants, of especially working class people of all genders, you know, of all um, races who, who come together to try to change the society. And, and I think that a um, lot of people, that information is never told. That information, you will never turn on the BBC or ITV or Sky ever to watch a, a documentary about social change and pioneers and, and people who try to change society for the better, you know, who try to build communities. Um, you don't really see that or you don't really hear about that. So um, yeah. That's me in, in a bit, I, I would say. If any of you guys have any questions now, I'm happy. But I, I, I think, yeah, that's, that's what I'm inspired by. I, I'm into community because I've been inspired by community people. Community people. Amazing, amazing. Thank you very much for that, Nora Dean. That goes beautifully into today's topic. And today's topic um, on Men Talk is about we can speak for ourselves and we had this conversation you know before but first on a scale of one to ten what's where, where are you mentally at the moment yeah lockdown has been really tough for me um not gonna lie lockdown has been tough i'm a very i'm a very extroverted i'm an energy person um yeah my mother would always say um that if a stone was thrown from two streets away, it would always be involving me somehow. It would either hit me or just miss me. Because <laughs> I'm super you know, I'm super hyperactive. But in, an Af in the Somali language, it doesn't really translate well to English. But yeah, the lockdown's been tough. I'm an extrovert, I'm a people's person. Yeah, um, some people say I'm loud, um, energy person. I, I love being around people and yeah, I'm vibing with people. So it's been really tough really really tough uh, i live in a unique community actually uh, the you, you you know the community where i live so it's a it's like 70 flats 
all kind of like looking into each other. So I'm luckier than most. I know that 100% I'm luckier than most. I open my door, I can see my neighbors walking about. And I think it brought us more together actually. As a, well, I live in a cooperative, it's called Homes for Change. It's, it's in Hume, Manchester. And yeah, it's an interesting community. And so we came together, I think. And yeah, it would have been a lot tougher, I think, if I lived in one of those apartments where you just go out and lift out the stairs into, a, into your apartment. And that's it. I think that would have been really, really tough. But um, I'm a people's person, 100%. And I need the energies of people. And, and I miss music. I, I mean, I'm 40 year old, but I'm one of those ravers. You know, I need music. <laughs> when I try to explain that to people, they were like, you still going out? I'm like, yeah, because I'm African. I'm sorry, African music is just part of culture. Like, <laughs> you know what it's I mean? embedded in us, let's be honest. Yeah, it's like, like that is part of us. Like, yeah, yeah. And, and I remember, I'll just tell you quickly, just a bit of segue, that when I came here, I couldn't understand. Like, I remember going to primary school and we had a school disco. And everybody was <laughs> standing on the side. And I'm like, what is going on here? Like, and I'm there in the middle and dancing and the teachers are dancing with me. And all the, everybody's like this, you know what I mean? Against the wall, I'm like to my friends, come on. That's dance. Why, where's this shyness about dancing? You know, and I just remember, wow, wow, the conditioning here. Like looking back now, I think, wow, that's when I was realizing how the British conditioning, <laughs> you know, the British conditioning was is wired, like, don't make, you know, don't make any kind of movements. We only have a couple of drinks, then we dance, you know what I mean? That we need that to be able to have fun and enjoy. But yeah, lockdown has been tough. I had two birthdays. I had my 39th birthday, and I'm always the kind of person like it's never my birthday unless I that unless I rage unless we had a proper sweat out. You know what I mean? It's never <laughs> my birthday until we have a sweat out. So I tried to do one on Zoom, um, and it was strange. <laughs> Dancing just with my laptop, seeing my friends on Zoom, and it was weird. It was weird. And my, my 40th. It was my 40th um, last month. Actually, it was my 40th and. And I'm still like gutted. So I build up to that. I was like, not that I, I'm one of those. I think I celebrate birthdays because there are people that I grew up with who never made it to 40, who never made it to 40. Like, so I celebrate it. There's times in my life that I never thought I'd make it to 40. When I was 15, I was thinking 40. It's, oh, oh, you know, <laughs> that's the view you have. You know, it's exactly the same when you're a kid. Buildings look humongous. You know what I mean? And when you get, when you get taught, you know, when you're a bit older, I was always a tall kid anyway, but when you get older, you're like, ah, oh, I used to think this building was huge and now it's not that big. Is that the same with age? As a kid, I used to think, oh, see, that's old, you know? And yeah, so it was tough. I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna say out of it. It was tough. It was a lot, especially it exacerbated my ADHD because I have ADHD where it doesn't, I can't focus, I, I don't focus. So it's been, it became even really difficult to focus. And obviously like everybody else, I was on the phone. So I was having too much phone time and stuff like that. Um, yeah. Um, so it's, it, it was tough, but my neighbors being able to get out on my bike, cycle around a little bit, that helped. I had a lot of friends who were very con um, COVID anxious. So even still now, but for the beginning of it, of this because some of them have a uh, um, have immune system um, 
issues with their immune system. So they're susceptible, you know, if they got COVID, they could be in hospital, obviously, and then losing people as well, you know, friends of friends, friends that I knew. So all of those different things, it was, yeah, it was a really weird time, but it was also a lot of reflective time. Because for the first time in so many years, since I was 18, you know, I, I was working. So from 18, you know, I was, you know, working. Actually, no, from 60, because I left home when I was 16. So from 16, I was working, but for a first time, you know, I was furloughed from my job. Till then, it was like, wow, what, what do you do? And, and those things, and I'm a person that needs people, 100%. I need people to be around. And all of the good things that I do to cope with my mental health, because I always think there's a self-care kick. So music, football, um, cinema, uh, culture, live music, all these different things that are there to kind of like friends, being with friends, having debates and talks, all of those different things. All of that was like, <laughs> so me and the four walls. And I developed this thing to say about when it got a bit too much, I had to go to my uh, mirror and have a word with myself to say, what, what's going on? <laughs> what am I doing? <laughs> and naturally, I would make myself laugh. Then I would think, oh, I've, I've literally lost a plot. You know, I've absolutely lost a plot. Because here I am, looking at myself in the mirror, trying to talk to myself, literally talking to myself. But then because I'm, I can see my reflection, I'm laughing at myself. And then I'm thinking, okay, my mental health is really bad because I'm now laughing hysterically. And I couldn't do what people are doing where they just dance around the kitchen on Zoom. I couldn't do that. Music has got, it's got to be a bit more authentic. So I was going out um, on my bike with my headphones and I was dancing a lot outside. And people were like, what's going on? And I remember this old woman, I was in Hume Park. She was walking her dog and she went, are you all right, son? And I'm like, yeah. <laughs> do, do, do you want to listen? <laughs> yeah, so, so that's what it's been. That's what it's been. But getting out was a lot. Uh, but there was days, especially in the winter, the winter was really struggled because I'm somebody, like I said, I was born in, in one of the hottest places in the world where the equator goes through. So in the winter, all of the things that I would do to, to, to come out of those three to four months of winter was really tough. And, and I, I'm a mental health spiraling and I'm still feeling the effects of that. You know, mental health is a thing where there are, you have good weeks, you know, good days, good months, you know, and it can be by, by what else is going on in your life? You know what I mean? What else? Um, so yeah, the struggle, the, the, the struggle is there. Definitely. Wow. I mean, when I'm, I'm really curious about this one now, because from when I've met you and the sort of energy that you give off, I would immediately have gone out of 10, this dude's like a eight, nine, easy, easy. Uh, I, I never say 10 because I don't know, like say what else is going on. So to hear you say that it's, you know, it's, it's been up and down and to what extent, I know it's an arbitrary number. Like, so would you say it was like a four or five or anything like that? Or, you know, at the worst of it, it yeah. is it's almost an eight at the worst of it. It's eight because, um, yeah, like I'm a people's person, bro. Like, I, I can't be able to see my friend. I can't be able to hope my, my people. Like, it's so weird. It's like, it's really weird. The pandemic dropped and all of a sudden, it's like we live in Sharia law. You know what I mean? You know, people talk about in this country, you can't touch anybody. You can't shake hands with anybody. You can't, you have to go distance, you know what I mean? Like, 
Those of you who don't know what Sharia law is, what a lot of the right wingers in this country like talk about. We live in Sharia law. Like, no, pandemic, <laughs> pandemic, and then it became Sharia law. You know, I mean, it wasn't a, it wasn't Muslims taking over this country. It was the pandemic, and these things came about. So yeah, I'm, I, I mean, some people may be into like understand African spirituality. When you're energy piece person, you need energy. Yes, of course, you need your downtime, like to be a way to kind of like, especially with ADHD and, and, and my energy and kind of extrovertness. I, I definitely need time to recoup here because I can give off so much energy and it can really shatter me. But when I need, you're gonna need that. And cause I've always had that. Like I, I grew up in East, East Africa and it's like, yeah, everybody in the neighborhood, you know, I've got something in my eye, auntie down the road is, it's like fixing me, you know what I mean? Sorting me out. That, that, that's the kind of thing where there's so many, there's always a group of people. There's always this, and I grew up with that. And actually a lot of the, lot of the people that I grew up with had that, we were, you know, that's what we call gangs now, but gang, what is there really a gang? Gang is just people who hang around together. People who just hang around together because they have to share the same interest and the same love for, and passion for, or activity or sport or music, all of these different kinds of things. And, and I found that as well, which is really fascinating. I, I love cinema because I'm dyslexic. So I'm a visual, so I'm a visual learner. I'm a very visual person. And I couldn't watch films because when I was a kid, I would watch films on my own just to get lost in them because I was interested in culture because I came from another culture. You know what I mean? And I was always thirst for culture, like to hear, and I got into independent world cinema and the arts. And, but as I got older, I looked forward to the discussions about the film. And I would always be fascinated what other people thought about the films. So lockdown happening, and I'm just like, I can't watch a film. I can't, because my brain obviously, I don't know. I mean, I don't know what you guys think about it, but what ADHD is or how it's some sort of Western construct prescribed thing. But just being being hyperactive person mentally, like it's witching, like different topics, different things, energy. It's it's this energy, you know. Um, oh, you can't yeah. concentrate on one thing at the same time, yeah. so you know. Yeah, I, exactly. yeah, I, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's just exactly. So I never wanted to have drugs for that mm. as a kid. I never wanted to because I saw that black kid, black kids who were around me were getting oversubscribed by these things, and they were turning into almost like zombies. But instinctively, like I said, the African way is knowing, isn't it? The African way is knowing. Instinctively, I knew stay away from sugar, not too much sugar, stay away from caffeine. Like we have a joke with my friends. Have I had caffeine today? If I if I come in and I'm just like, I'm like going hundred miles an hour, like, have you have you had caffeine? Yeah, I don't drink, I don't smoke, I don't because I know already these energies inside me. Like, so I don't need those things because it makes me even go. And I think that living here with a British attitude, I'm still being molded, you know? I was a lot worse when I was a kid. Like, a lot more hyperactive, a lot more outgoing, you know? Like, my friends would say, the Martians landed tomorrow, we'll definitely put you up to talk to them. You'll find a way. <laughs> <laughs> You'll find a way to, to talk to them. Because, yeah, I'm a people's person, so lockdown was really tough. At, at, at times, it was eight, nine, at times, I couldn't drag myself off the bed because it got really bad. You know what I mean? It got really bad because, like I said, 
is the type of people I have friends who are introverts. They absolutely love it. <laughs> they love it. You know what I mean? Because usually when I see them, I'm like giving them try, I give them a hug, and they're like, I'm like, come on, give me a proper, don't give me a British hug, give me a proper hug. You know that polite kind of like, <laughs> no, you can't feel it. <laughs> yeah. Don't don't give me that kind of hug. Give me a proper hug. And uh, they were making jokes that, oh, you can't hug anybody. You can't hug, and they kept reminding me, you know, when I talked to them, you can't hug anybody. And I'm like, yeah. But then I, I found a bubble, you know, watching a football when football restarted again with friends and yeah. So those are the things, but mainly my community got, got my hands there into more gardening and stuff. That's what I was doing. Amazing. Amazing. What would you say you've learned about yourself and your mental health during COVID? Because, you know, I think everybody has taken like, uh, an actual battering left, right, and center. So it's also been a, a journey of growth. Like, what would you say is your, what would you say you found out about yourself that you didn't know previously and what it's, what kind of impact it's had on you? I found out that I can make myself laugh a lot more than I did think that was what was possible. There's some things in my kitchen, there's some things I, I because I usually get all of the jokes through energy of, of being with friends that is instinctively is coming out of me. Like, and I'm like, what am I laughing at? Like, what am I, <laughs> I, I, I gave you an example in, of, of the mirror, you know, I coined this thing, go oh, have a word with yourself in the mirror, you know, you know, and I'm also kind of, I, I don't know that there, there are, because, you know, when you go through things in life, I've not had the easy of life, but I've had a beautiful life. There, there's beauty. One of my favorite rappers says, you know, life is a beautiful struggle. You know, Talib Kweli, shout out Talib Kweli, man. But that is the biggest kind of thing I always think. And I'm, so throughout, I would always think, regardless how things got bad, I would think, listen, you know what? I got food, I got warmth, I got shelter. You know what I mean? Like <laughs> looking at the needs, you know what I mean? Can I battle? But what one thing that I did, it did come to me is say, no, things are relative. You know what I mean? That if I'm feeling like this, it's okay to be feeling like this. And tell myself a lot more of that. If I'm having a bad day or bad week, it's okay. It's okay to be. Before I would try to like play it off and go, you know what? It could be worse. You know, there's a lot more work. There's a lot more people. That's why I always tell my friends, you know, there are about 7 billion people on this planet. There's about, what, 4 billion people who love to be in our shoes. You know what I mean? Love to have our problems. You know what I mean? Love to have our problems, you know? And yeah, so I, I, at times I was like, no, I'm feeling bad and it's okay. It's okay to, to, to feel bad, you know? It's okay to, to, to be feeling bad, try to find ways to understand. I'm one of those people that I, yeah, I would like to think I know myself. I know myself, but definitely I think this year and the pandemic has even, that's even gone more in depth to knowing myself to really knowing myself and, and yeah, just having those difficult kind of thoughts sometimes thinking, you know what, it's okay. It's okay. I'm not going to try to play this off. I'm not going to, not that to play it off, not to put it in a bigger context. That was the word, not play it, but bigger context. I'm going to just think, sit this with this and say, this is how I feel. Okay. What can I do to change this kind of state? What can I do? And look for those practical things. You know, sometimes it's watching football, 
you know, getting out on my bike, listening to music while I'm out there, you know what I mean? Those things. But I found out like getting out was really important, regardless how cold it was, one of those things, you know, born in East Africa, it's like coming to this year, like the cold, I'm like, ah, oh, great, cold days. But I'm like, get out, get out. And that, that's one of them. There's a couple of things, but that's a couple of the things that have have really been after I found out about myself. You know, I I love just also the way you're painting this picture. You, you've taken this on an incredible and unique journey, man. Like a lot of it resonated with me because I I also grew up in Africa. Like I grew up in Zambia, right? And some of the things, as soon as you started saying things like you're on the bus, everyone knows everyone. There's this complete obviously here some people do it and all oh, people look at you like a neglectful parent or something and it you've got an incredible skill with observation it's almost like the way some comics have observational humor skills like the way you pinpoint every all these little details and i feel like what you just said now where you do know yourself really well because your experiences have allowed you to get to know yourself and if you're a kid who has because I always used to have these discussions. I don't know if you feel the same way. Like, it feels like when you were growing up, it was more of an adventure and everything was an adventure, where you get to go, where you, and then when you come here, it's everything's so tame or you, you get to go to the park or the mall. It's just so, like, there's no, it didn't feel like there's that exploration and all this. And I think that lends itself to just knowing that if, if you like a variety of experiences and things, and that's what occupies you, you might get diagnosed as something like ADHD even more easily if you come to a context where you don't fit the mold. Like I said, if you're really loud and part of your way of learning, like you've discovered with the films, is I learn, I need to discuss it with my friends, I want to hear it from the teacher, like that back and forth doesn't fit into the listen for one hour, I'll tell you what to do, you just write. Of course your mind's gonna get bored because it's like this isn't for me i'm just you may as well just kick me out you know and i feel like there's some places where they're trying to get that variety with education and hopefully prevent things like misdiagnosis with people but that experience as well of coming from one context and i, I guess wait before i, I forget you, you also mentioned something incredibly personal and deep and you know just uh, to lose say both parents around this time and just sorry very sorry to hear that and mm. i feel like that that also explained much further regarding your ups and downs especially in say in the last year with with other things you know yeah um, i mean they didn't pass away this year they passed okay. away in the past decade yeah it's passed in the within the past decade yeah okay and and, and, like, and that was in the context i was saying that in context to um going back there because yeah. my parents were alive 100 percent, i would have gone back to have the place where i was born I would have, but because there's no longer there. I mean, my brother, my cousins, are, you know, my brother goes there. He lives in Norway, but he goes there a lot. I Because my mother was there, 100%. I would have gone back a long time ago. And that's what I was saying in that context. Um, oh, fab. thanks for clarifying. I mean, again, you know yourself really well because you said, I know I need the therapy. If I was ever to do that, there's things I need to process and go through 100%. So... <laughs> Talk us through having, growing up, knowing your environment, a community raises a child. I think that's the common thing in Africa. Everyone's your auntie. Everyone's just like your parent and everyone's looking out for you. You're safe everywhere. And then you come over here, you're learning a new language. 
there are these parallels that you see that almost make you feel, especially with hindsight, like you've almost moved to the exact same place, but just in a different country or context. But you're learning English again. You have to make new friends. You've seen and experienced something most nine-year-olds will never have even considered remotely. And you're trying to fit in almost to the simple, normal, everyday tasks of going to school and just talking about cartoons, probably like that's what kids do, right? With your identity at that point and you're learning English and all this, can you remember perhaps what some of the key struggles around then were or that was it easy, like you said, maybe you started playing football and you easily connected with uh, mm -hmm. students. What were some of the narratives? How were you perceived? You're coming in from a different country. You're speaking a different language. You're probably dressing differently. What was mm -hmm. that like? Or you meet with different people, <laughs> come over, have potatoes and mash, <laughs> bangers and mash, all that sort of thing. Yeah, it, it, it was super surreal. I remember, I remember 1990 was a really cold winter. And I lived, I lived in Rusholm and my primary school. And I remember, like, I was thinking, oh, it's not that bad. I came, and I think because football has always been part of my life because I was obsessed with it, like every other African kid. You know, growing up in the continent, you get obsessed with it. And it's mainly one of the things that actually, for my hyperactiveness, it was a thing that I could run all day, play all day. Like I said, I was, I just wanted to be, I just needed to be stimulated, like, and I would get stimulated by those things. And then coming here was tough obviously being strange from my mother. I never saw her actually until, yeah, I never saw her again. Yeah, my mother passed away and it's probably one of the most painful things in my life. Gosh. So I try to keep it together. Yeah, take time, take time. Bro. Did you manage to keep speaking with her and sort of keep in touch in various ways? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But it was never the same. But mm. um, coming here without her was was painful because, you know, it's like your mother is like, yes, it's it's super important when you that when you that age. So, um, no. it was tough. But football, but football. As soon as I saw people in the park. And when I think it was 1990, so it was that summer. I came July the 8th when I came here. And it was um, it was that the World Cup was going on. And, you know, my granddad and, and, and the family that were here, so we were talking about football and they were like, oh, and I was like, I'm cheering for all the African teams. And and I remember, I remember in Cameroon playing England, and in, you know, England cheating Cameroon and those things because I thought oh and then people are like, oh, it's gonna get colder in a couple of months time it's gonna get colder colder and I'm like I'm dreading this I'm like it's gonna get colder and then I remember you know months before you know like near August uh, taking me out getting me this heavy coat <laughs> this heavy like proper industrial heavy coat and then you know the weather changing and being cold outside playing outside riding bikes outside and all of that was changing, even like the, the trees and seeing all these things, how the trees were changing color and just going, oh my word, what's going on? And I remember thinking, I'm getting homesick. I want to go. I don't care if it's a war zone. I want to go. I remember one time I got into an angle with my uncle and I started walking. I was like, I'm going, where am I going? I'm going to the airport and I want to go back to East Africa. You know, I want to go back to her case. That was my, that, that was my thing. But um, yeah, it was tough, but football made me connected. Like I've got friends now that I've known in since I was nine years old. 
since I was nine years old. And I'm still tight with them because I, I'm a believer that we saved each other and, and through football and the importance of sport because it's a universal language. It's one of the things that I love. I think music is a universal language. I think football is a universal language. I think having a spliff in different parts of the world is a universal language. I've been to different, I've traveled a bit. I've been to different places and people, you see the same thing in, in different cultures where people outside a party, somebody's having a spliff and they want to pass it to you. I don't smoke anyway. A lot of people will come to that about stereotyping. We'll come to that in a minute, but that the things say, you don't drink? No. You don't smoke? No. <laughs> it's like, it's the things that people just think because they just want to stereotype you in a certain way. But I'm saying to you, I think the ganja culture is universal. Football culture is universal. Music is universal. You know, these things are, are, are universal, but football, yeah, I, I would say that. I honestly, I'm not being dramatic. I, I don't want to come off as being super dramatic. I got, I got emotional there a minute. I, got, I just want to let people know it's okay to get emotional. And that's one of the things about men, especially black men that we're not told. We can't get emotional, you know? And it's okay to get emotional. It's okay to cry. To me, when I cry, it's because something has touched me and I need to let it out other than keep it in. Um, but yeah, being dyslexic was, was really tough. A lot of still now, I have issues around my mental health, insecurity. Insecurity in terms of in a very construct way of where academics is, like you said, like you laid it out, read, decide. I can't concentrate because I'm too, my brain, something in my brain doesn't, my dyslexia is that I can have a, a constructed paragraph, but when I write it down, nobody can understand it. Nobody can read it. It doesn't make sense. When I text or when I tweet, you know, I don't know if you see my Twitter thing. I put that out there. I'm dyslexic, spelling and grammars, uh, purist, catch me outside. I put that on my, on, on my, on, on, on my Twitter. You know what I mean? But because of these things, so it's been really difficult. I think school was difficult. Like the dyslexia, they never caught it because it said, you're, you know, English, not your mother language. But even though I would ask the most interesting questions in a classroom, you know what I mean? Anytime it came to verbal, and I'm, I'm a from, I, I, I'm from a people of nomadic people. So a couple of hundred years ago, you know, oral languages, you know what I mean? People moving around different parts of Africa, like it's mainly oral and storytelling and imaginative. So another thing coming back to what you were saying about being confined, like school, this, like all of these different things. So that's why I honestly, the biggest thing when people say to me, how come you haven't got any, have any kids? It's because I, I, I didn't want them to be in this confined place. Because exactly like you said, brother, everything in Africa was an adventure. Was an adventure. Going, going, like going and swimming in lakes. You know what I mean? Like when I tell people that, like watermelons are like grown, big watermelons. When I came out of school, we should just grab them, smash them on the floor, and there we go. Like in that heat, walking, walking up. All of these different things were an adventure. You know what I mean? All every little thing in Africa. The thing about Africa is that for kids, is that the land and everything around it becomes something. If it's not football, it's something else. You know, it's going, can we go there? And can, can we go climb this tree? Can we go and climb this bit of rock? Can we jump off that? You know what I mean? Can we go and get some tires and do somersaults on them? You know what I mean? Like using the tire. When I try to explain to my friends, they're like, so you use the tire? Yeah. So a tire that hasn't got the inner tube in, the big tire, we will put it in, the, in, in a place where it was a bit more sandy and when we'd all run up spring off that tire to go and do somersault that are to do to, to try to outdo each other that's what we did i'm like 
oh, okay. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Everything, the thing about Africa is like the resourcefulness of people and children is exactly the same. It's like just everything around you, making use of everything that's around you. So coming here, yeah, struggling with dyslexia, it's been, it's one of the things actually, talking about mental health, the only ever time I'd ever, well, one of the times when my mental health was really dark was when doing my degree because I just, I just feel like I couldn't do it. I couldn't do it and I felt like a failure coming from an African context. The pressure that's on when you're, when you're an African kid, the education is wired into us. And yeah, I really, we're talking open and honest and frank here. Yeah, there was a time I thought of jumping up a building. You know, I, I, I did the part, I got up there and I was like, I can't do this, I'm a failure. I'm a failure to my, all my family, to my heritage. I'm a failure to all of the people. And the biggest thing why I didn't do it, why I didn't jump, because everybody that ever helped me in my life, in 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 in, in, in the city of Manchester, in South Central Manchester, we're talking about human resource on my side. This is the areas where I grew up. Every one of those people flashed before my eyes. Every one of them came to me and the look of disappointment, the look of disappointment, because they, people, like went out of their way. And that's the beauty about things. Like when I'm away in different, different times in my life to really help me, to look out for me, you know? And so, yeah, it's a thing that I still struggle with, you know, like dyslexia is a thing. I, I sometimes think, I think if I didn't have legs, when my mental health is really bad, I could think about it. If, I'm, if my legs, having dyslexia or having no legs, I'd be like having no legs. And that's how deep and dark it gets. And yeah, and, and that comes into race as well, because all of the stereotypes that were stupid, that were thick, that, you know, where this, all of that, all of that perpetuation that's out there in a white supremacist education and white supremacist world that we live in is out there to perpetuate these negative things in, about us. You know what I mean? Like I said, and that's why I, I, I'll i jump on any platform to come and think, ain't nobody speaking for me. I'm, we're speaking for us, man. Amazing, amazing. I mean, firstly, thank you very much for, you know, being courageous and expressing your vulnerability. And, you know, again, like something we always say and promote on all our podcasts and every time we're together, even as black men, um, to basically amplify that it's okay to not be okay and to be vulnerable and you know you've still got that connection you know with your mother bless her soul um for bringing you into this world and um still being connected even though you're miles apart and having that connection and you know she could see that you know she's looking down on you and saying that she's proud yeah. so yeah. definitely thank definitely yeah yeah thank you yeah yeah it's, it's yeah, it's one of those big things, man. It's like, yeah, we're forever like, we always have to have our humanity. So you're talking about being vulnerable. That's the most human thing to be. Mm. You're talking about being emotional. That's the most human thing to be. But we've we've let culture, aspect of culture, tell us that being vulnerable is weak. Yeah, it's, and now it's a stigma that's embedded in yeah. So, So, so what, one thing I was actually going to ask you is that, like, even though... Um, so, firstly, how many siblings do you have? I have... I have about, yeah, 10, 10, 11, 11, sorry, 11. Amazing, amazing, amazing. Yeah. So, so, 
with that, because again, back home, and this is something that, you know, you'll resonate with and something we've spoken about previously on previous podcasts is that back home there's stigma when it comes to mental health and this is also seen um, not just back home but it's also seen um, something you, you, you're very proud of in football as well or it was seen a long time ago the stigma of you know men can't talk about their emotions they can't talk about their feelings and things like that because you seem to be weak and you're not a man and things like that so with you transitioning and you know coming to the western side of the world um what was the actual st- stigmas between from back home you coming you know to the uk growing up understanding it and breaking that stigma for yourself and people around you yeah it's fascinating because i don't i mean I can only talk about my pew, but I was there since I was nine. Mm. So in terms of, I, I don't know what it was. I, I just think that with families and relatives back home, because of the amount of people, like there was always another wedding to go to. There was always everybody to see everybody, all aunties. And I know people had their own struggles, but people lived in bigger houses. You know what I mean? Like, or in the same neighborhood, like, you know what I mean? Like, so all of the having access to each other, the people being all together, I think felt that people were going through stuff together. You know what I mean? It kind of had that, that there was a shirt of burden, but in the West it's the individualized stuff. You know what I mean? It's more separated. You know, you get to this, you get to this age, you get to that. So, I mean, I, I can hundred percent imagine like people were struggling with mental health in, in Africa. I remember one of my uncles. Um, yeah, I remember, um, I remember he wasn't well. And I remember one time we went to see, we went to see him. And I remember going in this yard and people, obviously, it's a fact, everybody knows about it, that he was shackled to something. And he had a shackled thing to his leg, you know what I mean? That he was, so so he can come on work, uh, walk with us in the garden and talk to us and that. But he had to go back. But I remember seeing his ankle, like, you know, the mark of it, the mark of like something being tied to. And I remember thinking that's weird because as a kid, I was just very observant. I remember thinking that was weird and understanding that that's, that's how mental health is treated. Other than that, you've got the wise woman you go and see, you know what I mean? Or the wise uncle who knows who can get the herb or something, you know what I mean? Even I, I you know, Somalia is mainly like Muslim country, the, the, the old ways before Islam still there, the different ways of people going to see somebody if they're, if they're struggling with something. and and then realizing, but one of the things that I think that that I saw as a as a kid, especially living in a in a country where you know, as a kid I loved I loved it, but politically it wasn't uneven because we had a dictatorship that was suppressing from people from the north. He, he came from the south, and seeing the turmoil and like the curfews and protests and all these different kind of things, I, I think maybe I might be wrong, but. I, you know, maybe in different African settings, it's different. Like, and there's another thing as well about Africa. We're not all the same. <laughs> We're not all the same. We don't all have the same. We all bring individual, you know, cultures and identities together. Um, but I think I, I, I saw, I saw older brothers. I saw uncles. I saw people who were vulnerable and who men who were vulnerable, who would cry at funerals, who would cry when things happen, somebody's in hospital. So to me, crying was never, I never saw it. I only really saw it when I came to you, like 
boys don't cry. Like, that's when I saw it here. I didn't see it as much, like, like when I was growing up in East Africa, you know? When people were upset, we're upset, you know? People lost their temper, but, you know, but I did see some uncles and that of mine and all the bros who were vulnerable, like, so I never put that thing together. And, I, and I'm one of those people that, I, things are a lot, a lot of it is done on instinct. And it's that African way of knowing, I think. I, I always say that to people and people are like, well, what does that mean? I'm like this, to be in touch with yourself, to be in touch with yourself. And, and when I came here, I, I saw the stiff, the conditioning of the stuff, you know, the stiff upper lip, <laughs> kind of keep calm and carry on. You know? <laughs> That's what I saw when I came here. But yeah, um, yeah, with people who I'm close to, sometimes it's that because we're all struggling, like, so to burden each other. So sometimes that comes up in my head. I'm like, I don't want to burden, but my friends know. I think they know sometimes I go, you know, I go into myself and I'm not as hyperactive and, and I'm quite transparent because of my energy, the way I am. So if I'm not right, it comes across, even not if I try to hide it, you know what I mean? Or whatever they call it in workplaces, if I want it to be professional, you know, that's what they call it. I always think that's their way of saying, don't be human, be part machine. What professional to me means is don't be talking too much human, be partly machine, put the facade up, you know what I mean? And, and, and I always struggle with that. Why do you have to put the facade up? You, you're feeling, feel, feel your feelings. Yeah, yeah that, that idea of leave your emotions at the door is, is not really necessary. Like we, we can't, <laughs> they're here, they stay with us fully and that they shouldn't they shouldn't be silenced or go anywhere um, i think I, I was curious as you were describing some of this just now with whether part of the reason we sort of hyper masculinate ourselves or go with the i can't cry is because we are in a different context and we're almost in this i don't want to say goldfish bowl but part of it is you know that like you were pointing out before, even with things like education, people are looking at you like you're stupid, even though you know you're not. Like you know that like people have these stereotypes, and part of it is you cannot appear weak. It's almost like like being in prison. You always have to walk around with your guard up because someone's going to test you or try something. And it feels like sometimes when you're walking around, you almost you're balancing that as well as I can't walk around looking angry because then anything could go off or someone will take anything I say or the way I look at them in a different kind of way and so I feel like sometimes it's because of all of this what's going on in the context around us where you're not saying your natural element and people don't naturally know if I'm just being loud and happy it's not that I'm loud and happy I'm just being me but everyone else around here does this stiff upper lip thing so I look like I'm the one who's out of place or behaving yeah. in yeah. the wrong way yeah tied to that I really then wanted to understand how so you've come to the country you've seen all of these things going on you wanted to walk to the airport and go back which you've obviously not and what happens when you hit those teenage years and where I think again a rather really keen observation you make where most young men when they're in those ages say 14 to 16 or 18 they just have a group of friends if you if it's the right quote-unquote group of friends we say nothing of it. Oh, they study together. Oh, they play football together. Oh, if it's the kind where they are in the streets or doing anything that's socially deemed unacceptable, it's a gang. It needs to be broken up. 
But when you get to those, say, adolescent and teenage years, what does that look like? At that point, are you seeing yourself more as a Mancunian? The English is picked up, just one of the boys. What was, say, your identity, if you will? What was what were things like there around that period before we then transition probably into yeah. more adult years? I, I, yeah, I grew up in Manchester, in Merseyside, Caribbean communities so or Caribbean culture, music. So aspects of it was actually Africa from Africa. Like, you know what I mean? It was Africa from Africa aspects of it yeah there was a lot of white working class people who lived in my side as well but there was an aspect of it but I remember thinking feel like I needed to be scared and there were like I said there was you know violence because when people are putting these cages in these neighborhoods together with lack of opportunities and like destitution and poverty the trappings are there brother like we talk about the symptoms of of crime you know what I mean symptoms it's all of these different it's, it's dehumanization is is kind of like keeping people in this area and not being able to understand but like i said there were some great people great teachers great um um workers who were working in a different part of the community centers you know football taking people out you know all of these different things and i think i was just one of those kids I, I love football and football my friends football all of these different kind of things. That's what we were. We were the football guy. We were the football guy. I remember we had a, at the street, there was a code that, um, in my street, they were a, a limit, uh, kind of like, kind of like saying, we're the Crips. So I was, but I was allowed to wear red because I supported United and I was, they called me Cole. So that's what they call me. They call me Cole, you know, Andy Cole. Shout out Andy Cole. And uh, they were like, why are you wearing red? Like, this is, this is all Crips street, man. This is like, this is the Crips. We don't want to wear it. We don't want you to wear red. I'm like, but all my, all my football shirts are red. <laughs> you know what I mean? All my football shirts are red. But one thing I, I would do say that, I do say that um, a lot of the older people who were, who were in the trap, I, mean, I don't know you can define the trap. The trap is that getting into, get, get, getting into madness. They, they realized that we weren't into that. And they would always say, stay away from that. You know what I mean? You don't want to be like us. You don't want to be like us. And I would, and, and it's really interesting because how media depicts those kind of characters is totally different to the lived experience of being with those characters. Do you know what I mean? Because the, the, the total dehumanization, the fact that they're black and young, young men, you know what I mean, of a certain age, and they're into this, where exactly the same thing could be happening in Salford with white, you know, English young men, you know what I mean? Like that, how that is happening and how the media decide to cover that and to cover kids, black kids in my side. Um, but yeah, within that, they're incredible, intelligent, right, understandable, but they're just caught, getting caught on the trap in the system. And they would always say, nah, you guys are footballers, don't do this. Don't get, don't, don't, don't get sucked in by this. And, and we never explore that because even some people, some members of the black community will always go, oh, they're criminals. Oh, they're bad examples. No, they're human. They just got caught on a trap. And it's so easy when you're bored, when you there's lack of opportunities, when all of this world is kind of locked out against you and everybody expects you to be there. And another thing about going back to the toxic masculinity, what do we expect when society, even the hypersexualization and the hyper, the way we're hyperized, like in, in the world, where a black kid is old, you're a gangster, you're a criminal, you're this and that. Some of them are like, you know what society thinks of me of this way anyway? Because when I go into certain parts of this city, 
That's how they look at me anyway. So what's the point of me trying to disprove them? You know what I mean? It's exactly the same. And as black men, I think sometimes we, we adopt those identities. But at the end of the day, the only identity is that we're fucking human. You know, we're human. We're multifaceted human beings, but we're not allowed to be. We're not allowed to be multifaceted. We're not allowed to be. We're allowed to just to be this. You're going to be this. And because for my own safety, for my own comfort, this is what you're going to be. You know, for my own safety, this is what you're going to be and how you're going to act. And that's what I do when I speak to some of the youngsters, like on the streets, you know, I'm cycling around sometimes. And, and if I see something, I always try to talk to them. You know, I'm interested because I'm interested in you because I'm always trying to compare how it was for us. And I think for children now, for young people, it's hard because now everybody's getting at each other on Snapchat and on Insta. And you know what I mean? We didn't have those things. If you bumped into people that you didn't like each other, you met, you know what I mean? You, you dealt with it there and then, but now you, you don't even have to see them and you can be in pen, you can be in prison and you can still get at people, you know what I mean? And know what's going on and, and stuff like that. So it's really difficult. It's really difficult, but how I navigated it, I had a really, it was a beautiful culture. That's why I was more interested in culture because I think in Manchester, there's about over 200 languages. So I was always interested like, to know. And, and football took me so many different places, made me have friends from all walks of life. You know, I have friends now, like on Facebook. Politically, they don't agree with me. They don't, but I'm always there. I don't delete them. They, they, they oppose some madness. And I don't delete them because I think I'm not going to try to humanize them the way that they try to dehumanize me or other people who look like You know what I mean? I'm not going to try to dehumanize because I think the more things that I share, some of them might get curious and they might want to... And sometimes they do ask, what was that about? And I send them articles or studies or whatever. So, yeah, the teenage years were tough, but they were also beautiful as well, you know, because there was there were a lot of crap. There was a lot of, lot of violence, man. There was, you know, p p the racism from the police was like, even though the police knew we were the football kids, getting the dogs on us, pressing us against walls, doing all sorts of madness, man. It was absolute madness. It was absolute madness. But like, and, 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 and unfortunately, some of the people I went to school with and my classmates, some of them didn't survive that. They didn't survive it, which is tragic. But government policy comes down to, you know, regardless how much the youth workers did, they, some of them didn't survive. And it was, it was funny, actually. I never wear baseball caps. So this is the thing, I never, because one of the things I never wore baseball caps is because I know you, uh, re, uh, re, you're wearing a baseball cap. I never wore one, bro, because I remember there was shootings in my side in the 90s, mid-90s, where people were just randomly shooting out of cars. And it was some, a lot of it was mistaken identity. Yeah. And I was, damn, I survived the war in, <laughs> in East Africa. A time come here and then die here, man. I'm like, I'm sick of Concrete jungle. Yo, I'm sick of this. Trust me, I was like, I'm sick of this. And I remember, because I got shrapnels from, from the Civil War. I remember when I was like, when I was in the, sometimes for football, we would all go in the shower. And they'd be like, oh, what is that? What is that? I'm like, oh, that's shrapnel from Civil War. And they'd be like, wow. And I'm like, no, there ain't no ambulance there, man. You know what? If people didn't carry a car, in stop. You know what I mean? There were no ambulance to get you there. The glorification, especially in our communities of violence, I think it comes down from system, it's, it's structural racism and systemic racism, especially through mediums of television and popular culture. Like, you know what I mean? Like, like for example, in America context, okay? The mafia, 
it's glamorized. Movies made out of them. You know what I mean? Movies, like Al Capone is glamorized. People, oh, you hear the celebrity gossip. Somebody bought Al Capone's house. Like, in, in hip hop culture, we all wanted Al Capone, name these other, but when you're black, and you might be doing some of these things, nah, I never glamorized. So you're a thug. There's something aluministic about you. There's something rotten about you. And that's white supremacy telling us. I always tell people, black people are the most beautiful people in the world, man. People of African descent. I tell them, why? Why do you say that? Why do you generalize? I'm like, because if we were angry, if we were violent, the world would be burning, right? And it would burn for the next hundred years. Hope you enjoyed listening as much as we enjoyed creating. Don't forget to follow, like, share and connect with us on Instagram, Facebook and LinkedIn. Subscribe to our latest episode and listen to any you missed and tune in next episode. Take care.